Hello. This is the last Q&A sermon that uh, we have uh, for August this year, but I've got more questions than I think I can answer. But I'm going to try and answer them all slowly but quickly. Um, if you are a first-time visitor with us, uh, we just want you to know, usually we were preaching through a passage and doing what we call biblical exposition or expository preaching, but every August we like to just take two or three weeks to answer questions that the congregation has submitted. And I can never answer them all. Some of them I've already answered. Some of them I'm going to answer. I can see them coming up in in future texts. And other ones um, just uh, would take too long to answer. And so it kind of narrows them down. And so I have a great batch of unrelated but fun questions this morning that I think will encourage you as we go through and look at them. And the first question is, does the Bible say anything about a physically abusive spouse being a legitimate reason to seek divorce? And uh, in other words, is physical abuse a legitimate reason for divorce? And the answer is no. Divorce and remarriage issues are very complicated, though. And that is why we are actually going to do a, a class on it in the key social issues class coming up September 16th. If you want to come and get quite a bit of information, you can get it there. I won't be able to go into it in as much a detail now. When you examine all the texts... Uh, that have to do with divorce and remarriage. Um, divorce, first of all, is allowed but not commanded if there is immorality or adultery. In other words, if some sort of sexual sin takes place outside the marriage relationship, um, there is provision made by God to allow for but never commanded for divorce. And uh, the reason for that is Jesus states it's because of the hardness of men's hearts. In other words, um, sometimes adultery is so injuring to a person's soul. It is such a violation of the, the oneness of marriage and the marriage covenant that God knows people are going to have to have a hard time forgiving. And so he allows for divorce in the case of adultery, but he does not command it. And so we always would counsel forgiveness and working through it and maintaining the marriage. But if somebody says, I just can't do it, then um, they do have an out there. Um, uh, Also, uh, the second reason that the scriptures give is that if an unbeliever abandons a believing spouse. So let's say you are uh, a believer and, you know, your your spouse hates you and your Christianity and can't stand your religiousness and you're reading the Bible and you're praying, you're going to church and they just say, I just can't handle it. If you don't stop, I'm going to leave. The Bible says, let them leave because God has called you to peace and that you are no longer under bondage in such situations. First Corinthians seven fifteen, which means... Um, you can release them and not have to be bound with somebody who's persecuting because of your faith. However, the high road is always to try and preserve the marriage and to keep it intact and uh, for people to be saved and godly in that marriage relationship, but it doesn't always work that way. And that's pretty easy for a divorce and a marriage, and we could move on from here. But... Uh, It's amazing how many situations come to the elders which just don't quite fit things like you wish. We just wish there was like another 50 or 60 texts on divorce and remarriage. It is so convoluted. Um, For instance, what do you tell a woman uh, who, as an unbeliever, is married to a physically abusive husband? She finally gets fed up, moves to a different state. There she meets another guy. Moves in with that guy, has three children by that guy, and then she becomes a Christian. And then she comes to me. (laughs) And she says, what do I do? Now, do you tell her to go back to her first physically abusive husband? Do you tell her to remain in the immoral relationship? Do you tell her to divorce her physically abusive husband and marry an unbeliever? Do you tell her to leave the adulterous lover, take her children's with her and go back to the abusive husband or to divorce him and just be a single mom? Because adultery has occurred. 
See, that's what I get to deal with. You want to be a pastor? And that's when I say, I'll talk to the elders about that. How would you counsel a woman who comes to you and tells you that she and her husband agreed to get a divorce some 10 years previous? Um, They just weren't getting along. They were both unbelievers and they just said, okay, they filled out the papers and each of them thought the other one filed for divorce, but neither of them did. 10 years later, the woman comes to Christ. She decides to ask forgiveness from her ex-husband because she is realizing that she contributed to a lot of the things that led to the divorce. So she contacts her ex-husband and when she does, finds out that her ex-husband is married to a new wife and both of them have become Christians. In talking, they discover that neither, neither of them ever filed for divorce and that the guy is still married to the first wife and married to the second wife. The man has two wives now. What do you tell them? Okay. Well, since the laws in California do not uh, acknowledge polygamy, you've, you've never been really married to that wife you're now married to. And so dump that woman and go back to the first one that you're legally married to. Or no, divorce the one that you thought you were divorced from. Move to Utah. Have two wives, you know. I don't know. It's It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, you know, you think of that verse, well, you know, let each man remain in the condition which he was called. That is scary. Um, and so we, these are the kind of things that happen with divorce and remarriage. And I just give you those two real life examples uh, that I've had to deal with since I've been here at Calvary that, you know, have been um, rather difficult. All these verses start going through my mind. And so what the elders do is we sit down, we talk about it. We try and look at all the different principles that apply. And then we try to bring the truth to bear on the situation, explain to the people involved all that there is. And then we say, so you need to make a decision within these parameters. And then they do. Um, it's just not as clear cut because when men sin, they mess up. What is ideal? Like you ever wonder why there's regulations for kidnapping in the Old Testament? It's not because the Old Testament approves of kidnapping. It's because men kidnap. See, see what happens is, is there is the ideal situation. And then there is all of these sinful things that happen that really mess up the ideal. And then you have to have laws to deal with things that are the consequences of sin. And it is very hard to unravel some things that people nod up. Now, in the case of physical abuse, we usually tell the woman right off to call the police and file a report so that the police can then provide some protection. We also counsel for separation for a time. We don't say, we'll go back in there and be a punching bag for Jesus. Um, uh, The reason we do that is we feel that the preservation of life is more important and a higher priority than the institution of marriage. But what we would say is, is that be separate for a time, get counsel. We try and meet with the husband and get his side of the story. You find out things. There's a, there's a verse in Proverbs, which is like the ultimate counseling verse. And it is this, a person seems just until another one comes and cross examines them. And what you find out is the wife's at home just taunting and provoking and she's the button pushing masochist that is just like just tormenting her husband. He explodes and beats her. And then she, because she's starved, gets all this attention from people because, oh, I'm the poor wife who got beat up by my husband. And what you don't know is everything else that has contributed that. So you have to just get all the information you can to make give wise counsel. But In those cases, we would counsel the woman on her issues, the husband on his issues, if he would have it. Um, We would not encourage the wife to go back into a situation where we thought her life was in danger, but to encourage that man to get his act together. And one of two things usually happens. He either says, well, forget it, and he bolts, or he gets his act together, and they get back together. But we always try to counsel to maintain the marriage, if at all possible. That is the high road. Secondly, recently in a response to a key social issues class on abortion, several people asked questions about birth control. Okay. And I want you to know, I asked this, I answered this question in the 2004 Q&A and just really brief. I told you everything the Bible says about birth control, which is nothing. And, um, and then moved on. 
Whatever wants me to talk about things that aren't mentioned in the Bible. And then um, this is where it gets a little a little uh, dicey. Now, before I answer these questions, um, I, the question did provoke me to give a response. And um, and I'm going to explain why in a second. But let me explain this other thing first. There is a group of people um, who are called post-millennialists, preterists, uh, those who are theonomic reconstructionists, um, theonomists. Uh, Now, you're probably thinking, what is that? there are people who believe that Jesus is not going to come back at any time, that most of the prophecy is already fulfilled in the New Testament, that what we need to do is by our efforts, by our witnessing, by our sharing in the gospel, the church needs to take over the world, bring about a utopian state so that Jesus can come back after we, that is the Christians, work and establish a kingdom-like environment here on earth so Jesus can come back and receive the kingdom. This is, uh, there's different kinds of this thought And within this thought is that because Christians have to take over society, we need to be in control, clear, definitive control of our children's education. Therefore, they have been the forerunners and the primary movers behind the homeschooling movement. And that is why within those circles, you read about things about classes on logic and classical education. Their thought being that you need to train up a generation of of rhetoricians and people who are good spokesmen and good at logic and politicians. Because you need that to infiltrate society so you can turn the world into a utopian state so Jesus can come back. Post-millennialism, that is, after this, this time of restoration. Now... Within that group, there is a certain um, a certain number of what I might describe as rabid homeschoolers who pray for the destruction of public school, the total abandonment of public school, and um, who are promoting this agenda. Now, many people homeschool and they don't know anything about what I've just said, but now you know. Now, you know, and 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 they are just there because they have decided it's the best thing for them. And that's good and fine. The questions asked about birth control are very polemical in nature. That is, they are very argumentative. And I'm going to answer them primarily for the fact because they are great examples of what not to do. Now, I want you to know, I don't know who asked the questions. I don't know. But to me, these questions sound like they have come from some who've been exposed to this very bad type of thinking. And so I'm going to answer the questions kind of exposed. Not all of them are this way. About five people asked the questions. I thought, man, where is this coming from? Anyways, so here we go. I'm not, I don't know who you are, um, but I'm just saying that from my glance at this, I thought, wow, wow. It's kind of like me going up to one of the elders and say, have you stopped beating your wife yet? (laughs) Do you see how that question is loaded? The guy says, well, yes. And now he's admitted that he was beating his wife. If he says no, then he's still beating his wife. Either way, he's a wife beater. When the reality is he's never beaten his wife. But I have framed the question in such a way to arrive at an incorrect answer. Here are the questions. Is birth control biblical? Now, what do you mean by that? The the question is almost phrased that it's either biblical or not biblical. It's either biblical and good or unbiblical and bad. The fact is the Bible doesn't address it. That's the answer. So. There is no context here. There's no reference to the kind of birth control, the purpose of birth control, the motives, the situation, anything. It's just, is it good or is it bad? Well, you just can't answer the question. And biblical or unbiblical, if you're saying, does the Bible address it? The answer is no. If it's unbiblical, no. Is it biblical? No. Is it encouraged? No. Is it not encouraged? No. It doesn't say. Okay. Secondly, should we as Christians be trying to control birth and practice family planning or would God be more pleased if we just trusted him fully and stepped out of the way? Again, the question enforces an incorrect conclusion. Um, It falsely implies that family planning is a refusal to trust God fully. 
that the two are in opposition to one another and you either can do family planning or you can trust God, but not both. The fact is, the correct answer is, trust God while practice family planning. Third, is family planning wise stewardship or is it buying into a secular mentality that says there should be a limit on the number of children we have? Again, the question's loaded. Um, Forcing us to one of two incorrect conclusions. It implies family planning is secular. The word secular means not spiritual, worldly, without reference to God or the word of God. However, you can practice biblically informed family planning. So the right answer is not mentioned, though the question is phrased to drive you to one of two incorrect conclusions. Um, Four, is there something wrong also in that um, is implied the world is telling us how many children to have? Well, in China they do, but not in the United States. You can talk to people who think you should have none, one, two, three, four times, as many as you can, you know, whatever. Um, So, you know, there are people who think, you know, in general we should have left, but there are people who think we should have more. And so, you know, this depends who you talk to. Talk to some Catholic people. Um, (laughs) Is there something wrong with not wanting more children? No. But implied in the question is that people are saying it is wrong. um, And it's a matter of personal conviction, opinion, and acknowledging that it is God who gives children. Children are a gift of the Lord. Children are not merely the outcome of man's decisions, but we decide to take certain courses of action, which oftentimes produce children. And if we do that, that is our prerogative. Five, if children are a gift from the Lord, what are the implications for a married couple trying to prevent pregnancy for whatever reason? Again, a loaded question. The question clearly implies that since children are a gift from the Lord, using birth controls to reject God's good gift, therefore birth control is evil. Which is untrue. Children are not the only blessing from the Lord that we can pursue. I mean, they're a blessing, no doubt. First Corinthians 7 says it's better to be single. That is a better blessing. So, (laughs) so let's talk about it. So let me ask you, what's better to maintain undistracted devotion to the Lord or to be consumed about the world and how you may please your spouse? And if you have kids and your kids, there you go. You choose. You see, the question implies that one is bad and one is good. And Paul does say one is better if you can stomach it. If not, do the other thing. Because being single is better than maintain, in, in maintaining undistracted devotion. Being single is a better thing if you can endure it. But if you don't have the gift, then don't bother. The fact is being single is fine. Being married is fine. And being married with children is fine. Six, would the correct biblical stance be to leave it all up to God that he will determine how many children we have and when? Now, again, this is kind of a loaded question and implies that you either... God determines how many children we have or we do when the fact is God does. Children are a gift from the Lord. There are a lot of people and people in this congregation want to have kids and can't. Okay, so what you need to realize is you could be a single male and decide I'm not getting married. I'm going to get my job. I'm going to take all my money. I'm going to buy jet skis and four wheelers and hunting and fishing and golfing equipment. I'm going to live in my little condo, you know, with, um, you know, ultra modern furniture and have a giant white screen TV and just live for me. You know, um, there he goes, like the ideal of me centered life. And then all of a sudden you discover that some relative, um, has died and has willed to you their entire estate along with eight children. And now you're a single male with eight children. Now, God can do anything you want. And if God has designed that you have children, you're going to have them. <laughs> and some of you are laughing because you know in your mind, we're only having two, honey. Right? Yeah, get the five kids. Um, <laughs> you know, that's what happens, right? Now, we had some friends who were trying to have children. They had one child and then they couldn't get pregnant and did all the doctor things and couldn't get pregnant and couldn't get pregnant. 13 years later, they had just given up and figured, okay, we're not going to have children. She got pregnant and had twins. <laughs> so, you know, what, what does that mean? Oh, well, God's in charge. That's what that means. God's in charge 
And, uh, and so we don't control God. Um, he controls us. Remember what the scriptures say? A man plans his ways, but what? The Lord directs his steps. You think you're going to have this many children? Well, a lot of people thought one thing and got another. Um, seven. Would individuals be stepping into God's decision-making area by using contraceptives, planning when to have children, or having a surgical procedure after a certain number of children to prevent further pregnancies? Well, no one decides, again, anything for God. God is the one who gives. And a lot of people have had procedures that didn't work (laughs) and taken steps that didn't work. Um, God does not tell us to have as many children as possible. And though birth control was practiced in biblical times, the Bible doesn't address it. Eight. Isn't the mindset of using birth control similar to those who have abortions? Don't those who have abortions do so because they see children as a nuisance, inconvenience, expense, etc.? The scriptures tell us that children are a blessing from the Lord and uh, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Well, the question implies one motive for abortion, and there are many. However, some do choose to get an abortion because in their minds children are uh, a nuisance inconvenience and expense and so yes that is the motives of some but not all however um, and you could say yes that's some of the reasons people don't have children but everybody knows who has children they are a nuisance (laughs) they are an annoyance and they are an expense especially when they become teenagers um it's just the way it is. And it's not a matter of something good and bad. The fact is, is if you pursue having children, you are willing to deal with the annoyance, inconvenience and expense that come with them. You know, to most people, it, the children outweigh the, the negative aspects. It's not that those negative aspects aren't true. They're there. And you have to just be willing to deal with that. Now, it's, it would be like me, um, I love gardening. And you know what? If you garden, you have to fight weeds, don't you? And bugs and fungus and powdery mildew. And you have to dig and hoe and plant and harvest and do all that stuff. Well, that is an annoyance. It's an inconvenience. It's an expense. You know, when you're thinking, okay, I've got... These two little 69-cent tomato plants here, and I've put $25 (laughs) worth of worm killer on them. There's going to be like $10 tomatoes. Um, So does that mean gardening is bad? No. Does it mean those who do not garden are rejecting God's blessing for them? Absolutely. No. Um, I mean, if you ask me, I like gardening. You know, Psalm 67, 6 says, the earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. Now, what's wrong with you? You don't garden? You don't want God's blessing for your life? You see, same thing. The fact is, God gives us a lot of great ways to be blessed. And he also gives us opportunities and choices to pursue different blessings. Children are one of the great blessings God offers, but they're not the only one. Third question. First John 2 6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walks. Speaking of Jesus, since Jesus made fasting, um, uh, not just from food, part of his walk on earth, and gave us an example of his disciples doing this after he ascended. What are some of the guidelines for us to integrate fasting to our lives? Well, first of all, Jesus fasted, we know, um, when he was tempted in the wilderness. So he purposely chose not to eat food, become extremely hungry and famished and weak so that he could feel the full weight and brunt of his temptation in the wilderness. Um, after that, we don't know that he fasted for anything. Uh, first of all, fasting is not merely abstaining from all food. First, you need to understand that. Um, A lot of times we think of fasting as you stop eating, maybe even stop eating and drinking. You just stop, okay? Um, And you just start living off whatever you got in you. 
fasting is to purposely deny yourself food or some good thing, usually things that bring you pleasure for some sort of purpose, usually a purpose that you deem is good. Um, You know, the scriptures talk about wearing sackcloth. Has anybody here purposely worn sackcloth for, um, you know, sackcloth undies, (laughs) sackcloth, you know, robe that's all scratchy and itchy. Could you imagine wearing that? And, you know, you're mourning um, because your football team lost. You're going to wear sackcloth and (laughs) put ashes on your head. And, you know, that just doesn't seem that. Well, hey, did it in the Bible. And um, so how do we how do we deal with that? Well, you could fast, for instance, by deciding only to eat vegetables for a month. Okay, that would be you would be fasting from meat and fruits or or you could um, decide that you were going to go on a dinner fast and, you know, maybe for three months, not eat any dinner. You have that choice. You can do it. Um, you could decide that, you know what, you think you're enslaved to coffee. You're going to stop drinking coffee um, for three months and just make sure that you are in control of coffee and coffee is in control of you. Um, these are the kinds of things that um, you can fast. So fasting isn't always just abstaining from all kinds of food. Having said that, here are some reasons people fast. And uh, and some of these are kind of extra biblical and some of them are shown in the Bible. Fasting can be used to detoxify the body. And those who know about health and issues know that when you quit eating or you only drink liquids or certain di- liquids you what happens is your your it cleanses your kidneys and your liver and your digestive tract and you can actually kind of just help you know purify your body some people do it on a regular basis for that reason secondly fasting can be used for the discipline of denying oneself and uh, this is when you decide that you need to practice saying no to sin Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, sins are always tempting, aren't they? They always want you to engage in something that gives you pleasure, right? Or food is a great way to learn how to say no to your flesh because your flesh says, oh, no one's around. Look at that big plate of soft, chewy chocolate chip pecan cookies. You could go in the refrigerator and get that big glass of milk and pound the whole plate down. Um... See, those are the kind of things your flesh is crying out to you. And so food is a good way to learn how to deny yourself. It can be a very spiritual exercise because what, what you find is very close parallels between temptation to sin and temptation to eat. And, and we have to eat. And so there is this craving, this inner longing to have food. And when you want some really nice food but decide you have celery sticks and you know, whatever, um, you know, something boring. Why? Why would you do that? Because it's good to learn how to say no to your appetites. That's why. You know, the people, people are, we know that there's a conspiracy here among the congregation to kill uh, Brock and I and Tim off um, because people bring stuff up into the office that's really good. <laughs> Tasting, but bad for you. I mean, these people bring up all sorts of fudge and cookies and, you know, chocolate-covered peanut clusters and these yummy little... I mean, no, I couldn't even describe them to you. It's almost lunchtime. I know you're probably going, shut up. Um, <laughs> yeah, they bring all this up there and they spread it all out. And, you know, the easy thing to do is you're in there studying, you come back for a leg stretch, and all of a sudden, there it is, out there, and no one's watching. And uh, sometimes the best thing to do is is just to kind of bend over and just smell that yummy sugar and look at those yummy little pink clusters or those yummy little pastries and just kind of get a good whiff of them and then walk back in your office and not touch them. Why? Because it's good to be able to deny yourself what you want. That is a good practice. Because you have to deny yourself sin and the parallels are virtually identical. And so fasting can be used to deny yourself. Fasting can be used in exercising self-control. You know, the Bible says we aren't to be mastered by anything. Anything. And so if you look at your life and you realize this one thing 
is mastering my life, maybe I should stop for a while. For instance, in seminary, I love coffee. I love drinking coffee. And in seminary, I would, you know, the temptation is to just drink coffee all the time, eat a bunch of junk food, stay up too late, get up too early and kill yourself off. And so what would happen is, is at the very beginning of seminary, I realized I was drinking way too much coffee. My heart was pounding when I was trying to sleep. I couldn't sleep when I needed to sleep. And so I just decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to drink any coffee except at midterm and final week, two weeks a year. Why? Because it's good to use self-control to see all those students over there with that hot, steamy cup of coffee and you're drinking water. <laughs> it's good. That is a good thing. That is a good spiritual discipline. You know, you realize that every single morning you get up, you go to Starbucks, you stand in line with those same group of people and you get your whatever, you know, triple tall, thin, mocha, maki, whatever. And you you eat, you drink it, you know, along with your little whatever. Why don't you just not do that for six months? Why not? It'd be good. It'd be a good spiritual exercise just to deny yourself. Just try it. I double dog dare you. (laughs) Give me your Starbucks card. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how it works. See, this is a good thing. It's good to learn how to deny yourself pleasures that you want. I think it was John MacArthur who said that uh, he likes to say no to something he wants every day. And that's a good a good thing. To practice. So fasting can be used in that. Fasting can be used to lose weight. You know, people are on diets. You know what diets are? Fasts. That's what they are. You're fasting. You're not eating meat. You're not eating vegetables. You're not eating carbos. You're not eating whatever. It's all part of a fast. It's a controlled fast, and some people do it to lose weight. Fifth, people fast in response to, you know, the death of a loved one or some grief that they're suffering. We see this in the Bible. Some king dies or some big judgment is, you know, planned like Nineveh, you know, in three days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And then what does the whole, the whole nation do? They all, the Ninevites go into fasting and it diverts the judgment of God. And so there is a time when you can fast to just show respect for, or devotion to that. You're serious about something. Now, there are reasons not to fast. One, God does not accept our fasting if we are living in unconfessed sin. So if you think you're going to do some spiritual fasting, and yet you're not going to do spiritual fasting, you know, to seek out some prayer request or some sin issue that you're dealing with in your life, you're thinking, man, I want to deal with this, but you've got other sin that you're not confessed. Don't even go there. Because it doesn't work. For instance, in Jeremiah 14, 12, God says, when they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I'm not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end of them by the sword and famine and pestilence. Why? They're fasting. Yeah, but they're living in unconfessed sin. And God says, don't go crawling to me in your old fasting condition when you've got these sin issues in your life. You deal with those first, and then if you want to come to me in prayer and fasting, that's fine. Second, God does not accept our fasting if we fast out of dead ritual. You know, sometimes you can just uh, get into the habit of, you know, maybe you've, you know, every Thursday is your fast day, you know, or whatever, or yearly on a certain day, you have decided to fast and you now have this opportunity and you've done it for so long, it just becomes a dead ritual. This is what happened to Israel when they were in Babylon, for those 70 years, they observed fasts twice a year that weren't commanded in the law of Moses, but did it. And this is what God says when they finally return. He says this in Zechariah chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Say to all the people, the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? And the implied answer is it wasn't. When you eat and drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? And do you not eat and drink yourselves? In other words, he's just saying, you know what? You fasted, but you fasted for yourselves. You fasted because you wanted to come back. You fasted because you wanted your way. You wanted to be restored to the land. You wanted what you wanted. That is not the reason for spiritual fasts. God's saying you should have been fasting because you sinned against me. You should have been fasting because you were sorry you had rebelled against me to the place I had to drive you out of your land. But did you do that? No. You ate and drank trying to fast in order to 
get what you wanted from me. It's kind of like the prisoner prisoner who, you know, goes up to the warden and, you know, they interview him periodically, see if they can put him on parole. And what does the, the prisoner say? He says, whatever they want to hear, right? Why? Because he wants out. It's not that he's sorry for his crime. What he wants is out of jail. And so he does what he needs to do to get what he wants. Well, that's what the Israelites are doing. And that's what a lot of people do sometimes in their fasting and spiritual pursuits. They want something from God. It's like a person who's not getting what they want in their life. So they start going to church on a regular basis, praying, putting in prayer requests so that God will fix their life and make it like they want. So then they can depart from the church and live in the world again until the next crisis comes along. Don't do don't fast for that reason. God does not accept our fasting. We fast to be seen or noticed by men. You know, you go out in the in the foyer and, you know, there's this person out there. Just, it's like, what's wrong? You know, why are you rubbing your stomach? You have a stomachache. Oh, I'm fasting. And it's like, well, why are you telling me? Oh, I just have issues. I'm trying to devote myself to the Lord. You know, what is that? Well, Jesus tells us what it is in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, when he says, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head with... Anoint your head and wash your face so that fat, your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus said um, his disciples would fast after he left them in Matthew nine fourteen and 15. Then the disciples of John came to him. That is Jesus asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast? It was common in that culture, but your disciples do not fast. Good question. Jesus says, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Then they will fast. The point there is that the reason they would fast is for mourning purposes. And he says, you don't mourn when the bridegroom's there. So that implies the motive of the Pharisees and uh, disciples of John fasting were mourning, mourning over the sin, mourning over the sin of the nation, whatever it is. The judgment of God, obviously evident in the presence of the Romans controlling them. The apostles practiced fasting in Acts 13.22. It says, and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So here we see the apostles praying and fasting. And then that's when um, God tells them what they want. He wants to do. In Acts 14.23, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord who had uh, commended them to those who had believed. And the, the whole point here, which is great to get, it's really apart from fasting, is that they felt that a choosing church leaders was so important that they prayed and fasted before they made that decision. And uh, that's what they did. That's an Acts in the New Testament era. So, yes, we are to follow Jesus' example. Yes, we are to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. But that does not mean we are to do everything Jesus did. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus walked on water. Jesus restored, you know, sight to the blind man. Jesus, you know, uttered things and did things that only God could do. And that is something we cannot model ourselves after. So we could, yes, um, model ourselves after Jesus fasting before entering into the desert. So you could go into the Mojave Desert, sit there for 40 days and have a fast. I wouldn't recommend it. So you could be tempted. But, you know, if you want to get to that place, um, that's fine. But fasting is fine. Um, you can do it for some of the extra biblical reasons I gave you or so, for some of the biblical reasons. If you do it for a biblical reason, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody and don't, you know, look all gaunt. People keep looking next to you. Man, what is that growling inside you? Um, and just keep looking forward. Um, all right. So fasting, those, that's pretty much as much as I could come up with. Four, what is the night monster mentioned in Isaiah thirty-four fourteen? Is that a good question or what? <laughs> Guys like monsters. Um, 
the monster question. Uh, Isaiah 34, 14 says, The desert creatures will meet with wolves. The hairy goat also will cry to its kind. Yes, the night monster will settle there and find herself a resting place. A woman night monster, no less. Uh, That is interesting, isn't it? Sometimes you're reading your Bible and you're going, what is that? You know, question mark right in the back for the Q&A time in August. Um, Basically, if you look in, if you look at the context, you'll see in verse five and verse eight, the, the, the whole chapter is talking about the judgment of the nation, specifically Edom. And God is just saying that he is going to bring such total and utter and sustained desolation to Edom that it's just going to be a hunt for things he mentions are the pelican, the owl, the jackal, the ostrich, the wolf and the hairy goat, which he mentions in the preceding context. The whole point is this. That when this judgment happens, it's going to be so complete and thorough and lasting that the ruins are just going to be nothing more than a place for wild animals. Now, the question is, what is the night monster? And the night monster could be an allusion to a well-known myth of Isaiah's time that there was a female night demon with wings and long flowing hair that supposedly seduced lonely travelers. There was a similar kind of... um, uh, myth in per, the, that the Persians had even before that. Um, Mardikora, a creature with the head of a man, porcupine quills, the body of a lion, a scorpion tail, which supposedly ambushed people and devoured them. Isaiah's reference, though, to the hairy goat might help us better understand this because the hairy goat is actually a phrase used to describe demons in Leviticus 17.7 and is translated satyr. A satyr is one of those half goat, half man type creatures in Second Corinthians 11.15 and it was supposedly this demon man creature, of course, both mythological, not the demons, but the creatures. I think what's happening is Isaiah is just merely saying it's going to be so wasted. It's just going to be a place for wild animals and demons and monsters. Um, I think he's just using it figuratively of that. So um, there you go. Night monster. Five. Did Jesus accept the blame for our sin as his own? We know that Jesus covers our sin, but are we still to blame? Do we still carry the blame even though we no longer carry the punishment for our sins and God sees us as righteous through Christ? Well, this is a good question and it really hinges on your understanding of what it means to be in Christ positionally and what you are in reality as a Christian who is in Christ. It has to do with what you will be like in the age to come and what you are right now. And so you have to understand this. Upon placing your faith in Jesus Christ, we are completely forgiven, justified, made holy. The righteousness of Christ is reckoned or imputed to us. We are perfect, without sin, sanctified, made holy, righteous as Jesus is righteous. And when I say positionally, I mean as God sees a person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation, God sees them, quote, in Christ as perfect. Now, that's one thing. Secondly, when Christ died on the cross, he took our blame, he took our guilt, he took our punishment upon himself. He received from the Father that wrath, that punishment, that judgment That we deserve. He became, the scriptures say, sin for us. Not that he became a sinner, but he was treated as the sinner and received the judgment of God. Practically, though, in this life, we are still sinners. Every Christian knows that. We live in the presence of sin and are far from perfect, committing sins every day. And when we sin, we're always to blame for our sins. God is never to blame for our sins. Each man is tempted and enticed and carried away by his own lust, James says in James 1.14. And so it's always your fault, never anybody else's. And though you are saved from the eternal consequences of sin as a Christian, you are not saved from the temporary consequences. I get mad, shoot somebody, they're shot. You know, if I kill them, I go to jail. 
It has nothing to do with me being forgiven in eternity, but I still go to jail, right? So your sins now have consequences in two ways. One, they have consequences in that they cause you to be estranged from God. It's not that God leaves, you leave God. When you sin, you choose to turn your back on God. That's why you need to repent and confess your sins whenever you commit sins in order to stay facing towards God and receiving his blessing. So you forfeit the blessing of having a a close walk with God being filled with the spirit. Also, your sins in this life affect how you will be rewarded in heaven. And we see this from different parables, how people live here on earth are a training ground of their rewards. But your salvation is never in jeopardy. It's never a matter of receiving forgiveness. It's never a matter of God turning his back on you. It's a matter of you being right with God or not right with God. And so in this life, you are a sinner and you will sin. Keep your sins confessed and you will have that relationship with God that he wants you to have. You live in unconfessed sin. It's like turning your back on God. And of course, you will feel far from God and you're always to blame for your sin. Six, the church holds the position of the bride of Christ. Where and in what position does that place Old Testament tribu- and tribulation saints? Are they also the bride of Christ or will they be considered different from us in heaven and eternity? Now, what you need to understand is, is that there are different times in history when people have become Christians. There are Old Testament saints. Those are people from Adam and Eve. All the way to, you know, the the starting of the church. It's that time period when people believed God and it was reckoned to them as righteousness. They didn't have all the details we have, but they believed and they were saved by grace through faith in the promises of God and what they knew up until that time. Okay, those are Old Testament saints. Once Christ died and at Pentecost, the church was born. Then we enter what is called the church age. The church age lasts from the beginning of the church all the way through to the rapture, the beginning of the tribulation. A tribulation, a seven year period when God pours out judgment on the earth. That is the church age. Then you have church age ending with all the believers being raptured into heaven. Then you go into the tribulation and in the tribulation, you have people who also come to the Lord. They are tribulation saints. Then those tribulation saints, some of them live to enter into as mortals into the thousand year reign of Christ. They are then mortals who then have children and those children, some of them become believers. And so those are like millennial saints. Now, when you look at the book of Revelation, which teaches us about the tribulation, what you discover is something rather interesting. You know, at the beginning, it has all those letters to the churches and the church is the big discussion. Well, the last place the church is mentioned is in Revelation 3.22. And then after that, the church isn't mentioned anymore until after the tribulation is over. In Revelation 19.7, what's interesting is that all the time when it's talking about and detailing the judgments of God on the earth, It never mentions the church, but all of a sudden they appear after the tribulation, which is when the second coming happens in revelation chapter 19, verse 14, we read and the armies, which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. So when Jesus comes back, he's with this army, an army that has been clothed with white garments and they are riding horses coming back. Well, they don't have any implements of war. Because only Jesus is doing the fighting. And so who are those people? Some people said those are angels. But when you look at the scriptures, and we don't have time to go through all of them, you find out that the saints are those who are clothed in white raiment by Christ. Remember Joshua, um, the high priest and the vision in Zechariah 3, when he stands before the Lord and Satan is there to accuse him, what happens? He takes off his old garments and he clothes them with white raiment. And that's how the saints are described. And these same people are described in Revelation 17, 14 as the chosen and faithful, which is obviously a a reference to Christians. So at the end of the tribulation, when Christ returns, who's with him? The church. That's one of the reasons we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. So there are saints, Old Testament saints. There are church age saints tribulation saints and millennial saints. 
And though they all receive salvation and they're all blessed having different amounts of knowledge in the time they lived in, they all get to heaven and they all enjoy some of the same promises given to them um, as believers, but they're not the same. Seven, how can we make Hebrews 3, 13 through 14 happen in our local congregation? You're thinking, what is that? Um, We'll read it in just a second. Often I feel like a lone ranger Christian as opposed to a part of a body, even though we are plugged into different programs and have many friendships at Calvary. Well, in Hebrews 3, verses 13 and 14, we read this. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Well, this is one of the many one another texts in the Bible. There's lots of them. And you know what? We are doing the one another texts um, here at Calvary. As a matter of fact, it's happening right now. You are receiving the blessing of my spiritual gifts. And earlier we did corporate worship. And before that, um, you know, we, you probably talked to people in the hallway and we had the greeting time. All this is part of the one another's where you talk to people, get to know people, whatever. So it's happening and it's happening a lot, but it's not happening as much as it could. Part of the reason is, is we live in a society that does not encourage community interaction. You know, you, you know how it is. You, your neighbor shows up and the garage door goes up and then the BMW goes and it goes down and it doesn't open up until the next morning at 545 when the door goes up and they drive out and they leave and then they come back the next night at six. And that's what happens all week until Friday when you get home a little late because the traffic's so bad. And then you try and go out and have fun and you do that until late and then you sleep in because you're tired and then you get up on Saturday and then you go out and have breakfast and go shopping and then you stay up late again. And, you know, you just go, you, you, a lot of times you never see your neighbors you wonder are they home are they ever home now let's just say for instance that we used to take everybody in this room right now we just take them all out of here everybody is at church right now and we just like transport all of us into the middle of kansas since that's where pastor dave's going and uh we just like establish a town there that's like our own little christian commune and in this town there's no tv no DVD, no internet, no telephone. And uh, so at nighttime, you can either read the book or you can sit out on the porch and whittle a stick. <laughs> and then you look across the way and you say, hey, neighbor. And then you wander on over. Why? Because there's nothing else to do. And you say, so how you doing as you're whittling your stick? And he says, oh, I'm just sitting here on the porch. It's a nice evening. And you chat. And that's how it used to be. That's how it used to be. But now there are so many things in the world that keep people from interacting socially that we can just stay in our house and virtually live if we have an Internet connection. They'll deliver your groceries, deliver your food, deliver everything. You know, you can have internet doctor visits. You know, you can do anything you want. There's just everything. It just comes to you from the internet. You can sit down there and just put plywood on your windows and never go out. So we live in a culture that doesn't really encourage community. Having said that, if you're, you're plugged in and you're not you're feeling like the Lone Ranger. It could be for several reasons. It may be you have unspoken expectations. You want people to seek you out and ask you over and get to know you. And you know what? You need to do that to them. When you have a big church, you just, you miss people. And so you need to take the initiative. You need to go up to people and say, hey, my name's so-and-so. And hey, how would you like to go out to lunch? And how would you like to come over for a barbecue? And you make the effort and you ask the questions. You know, we tell our kids and we have people over. Don't just slump there and kind of, you know, oh, brother. <laughs> you know, you ask them questions. So how long have you been at Calvary Bible Church? How, when did you come to the Lord? Tell me about your salvation experience. Uh, what have you been reading in your Bible lately? Reading any good books lately? You know, where are you serving in the church? Yeah. What's that ministry like? You ask questions about stuff that matters. You get involved. If you want more of that, then you make it happen. And you know what? There's plenty of opportunity to make it happen. But you know, don't just sit there in the corner with your arms crossed and a scowl on your face going, hey, this is an unloving church. Um, Because you know what? You're part of it. 
and a grumpy part. So make sure that that's not the case. Um, you know, and it might be another, another thing that, you know, the Lone Ranger mentality could happen. If you have a, a ministry, it might be even an important ministry that just takes you, that you don't interact with people. Like, for instance, Larry Swanson sits in this tiny little hot closet and he copies, makes copies of CDs and puts labels on them so you can all be blessed by having CDs of the sermon. Well, no one else is in that closet. No one else could fit in that closet. And so if he wants to have good social action and good one anothering, it's not happening in the closet where he's doing his ministry. He's got to get out of there and he's got to talk to people, have people over. It's just the way it is. So some ministries kind of are those kind of you serving the body, maybe in a very important way, but by yourself. And if that's the case, you need to take the initiative to get out and have people over and get involved in people's lives. And so if you want more on that, you can listen to the two sermons on one anothering, on being involved in church from the church series I did a while back, you and the church, or you can listen to Tim's recent message on the one anothering and figure that out. Eight. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Now, I want you to listen closely because this last question is got (laughs) twists and turns. It actually makes sense. Um, I always wonder, is this like a seminary student who's trying to like stump me or um, it's multiple pieces. It's pretty fun. Does the sovereignty of God for Christians spill over? into our daily actions to such a degree that he will make sure we walk in each and all the good deeds that he has predestined for in Romans, it teaches that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called, etc. And the Ephesians verses above actually verse above um, says, God prepared the good works beforehand So does that guarantee we will do them? Or is there still an element of free will in our daily living so that God prepared opportunities for good works beforehand and he works in us to want to do them and he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to perform them, but we, in some cases, may still need to, on our own, yield our will to his in order to fulfill them, meaning we can resist and refuse to fulfill those good works that he has prepared beforehand to do. Now, that's such an easy question. Should I even bother? Um, No. First of all, if you want to get more information on this, you can listen to the four sermons on the sovereignty of God um, from the Psalm 145 series on the attributes of God from Psalm 145. You can get it on the Internet where I talk about this in some detail and from different angles. But... First, I would just want to say this. The text that you mentioned, Ephesians 2.10, should read, And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Now, in the old New American Standard Bible, it said that we should walk in them, and almost all new translations say that we should walk in them. But if God prepared beforehand that we would do them, we're going to do them. So I think the best translation is we would walk, not we should walk. One puts the emphasis on man's desire to maybe align himself with God's eternal decree. And the other one is, is God is sovereign and directing men to fulfill his eternal decree. And we all know that a man plans his ways, but what? The Lord directs his steps. There we go. We know from Ephesians 1.11, God works all things after the counsel of his will. God, for instance, though, is not totally free. It talked about, you know, freedom. I just want to make sure we understand freedom of the will. It's really, as Luther said, the bondage of the will. Before we're believers, you need to realize that we're unbelievers. The only thing we do is sin because We aren't living for the glory of God. Nothing we do pleases God. And so we can't understand the things of God. We are spiritually dead. We cannot please God. Nothing we do pleases God. We can't save ourselves. We can't atone for our sins. 
You know, we can't turn ourselves into a chair. We can't, you know, create things out of nothing like God does. We can't, we can't. Okay, so we're not free. We're only free in respects to what God has created us to be free in. Even God himself is not totally free. God cannot lie. He is not free to lie. He's not free to break his promise. You know, can God make a stone so big he can't move it? Well, the answer is God would never do that because that would be a contradiction of his nature. And God never contradicts his nature. So what we need to realize is that when you're talking about freedom here, we're talking about for an unbeliever, only freedom to sin for a believer, freedom to obey or disobey within the realm that God gives him the strength. Now, the believer is set free from the power of sin. So he can choose to believe and obey the truth. However, even when a believer disobeys God, he has not put himself outside of God's eternal decree, which includes everything that happens. He puts himself outside of God's revealed will in the word of God, but not his eternal will and decree. So keep that in mind. That is why believers, even though they sin, God still causes all things to work together for their good. Why? Because of providence and concurrence. And you can listen to those messages to find out about that. And if you still don't understand after those messages, you just have to wait until you get to heaven. You can ask Jesus. The fact is the sovereignty of God does not nullify human responsibility. It does not take away choices from us that God has granted. You still have a choice. You still need to do what's right. And if you don't, you're to blame. However, those good works that God has prepared beforehand, you're going to do them. Because God has made sure of that. Just like Jesus is going to come in, he's going to, they're going to cry out and say, Hosanna in the highest, and he's going to get crucified, and nothing could stop that. And demons tried to stop that. Satan tried to stop that. Judas tried to stop that. The high priest. I mean, you know, there were so many people against Judas. They were against Jesus. Judas, everybody was against him. And yet what happened? That Paul Peter says in Acts that, yes, it is clear that... The Jews and Pilate and the Romans, the Gentiles, did whatever your hand predestined to occur. Concurrence. Oh, man, it's a good doctrine. Complex. You can study about it later. Nine. Can you explain the psychology of Jesus as a baby? (laughs) Was he fully aware How are we to understand his humanity and divinity when he was a baby? Where was the word of God in baby Jesus? Was baby Jesus ignorant? Was he growing in wisdom? Well, let me just answer these questions. Was he fully aware? No, he was like every other baby who was getting a clue. Um, How are we to understand his humanity and divinity? I'll talk about in a minute. Where was the word of God in the baby Jesus? Jesus was the word of God in flesh. Was baby Jesus ignorant? In his humanity, yes. Did he grow in wisdom? Yes. And here it is. When Jesus was born, he was fully God, which means he was all-knowing, right? But in the incarnation, part of the humiliation of the incarnation was him choosing not to exercise his divine attributes in submission to the Father. So he had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to walk. He wasn't glowing. He didn't come out of the womb saying, oh, mom, it's good to meet you. Um, I've been around b- before creation and uh, if you have any questions, I can answer them. Um, no, he cried and did what all babies do at that age. He was fully human, grew up just like a human, um, did all those things. Uh, Luke two forty says the child speaking of Jesus continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. He grew in wisdom. That is the application of truth. Not that he ever disobeyed God, but as he learned the truth, he kept applying it. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Luke two fifty two, which means he just kept growing and physically and he who was fully human, just like us. He didn't walk around with some glow about him or exercising all his omniscience. Um, If he had a cell phone, he would have turned it off. (laughs) 10. 
If Christ was fully God, was it even possible for Christ to sin? In other words, do we affirm his impeccability or that he was peccable? Um, Hebrews 4.15, Luke 4, James 1.13. I won't use the stainless steel pole analogy. Um, You don't know that one? Uh, (laughs) He's going, no, don't do it. Okay. Um, Jesus being God could not sin because God cannot sin. And so if you allow for Jesus to be able to sin, then you're affirming he's not God. And so Jesus in his humanity could have his flesh appealed to just like us could be tempted just like us in every way that we are tempted like us, Hebrews 415, but he could not sin. He was impeccable is that word used there. And finally, number 11 in Ezekiel 30 through 36, there is a mention of sacrifices being made again in the temple when Christ sets up his future kingdom. If Christ's sacrifice was finished, why would God need to do that? Have animal sacrifices. Will this be a memorial to the remnant or a representation of God's presence? What, what's the deal on this? Well, first of all, the deal is, is it's not Ezekiel 30 through 36. The deal is Ezekiel 40 through 48 is what talks about the millennial temple. And yes, sacrifices are mentioned and people have always asked why, well, why are they doing sacrifices? And the answer is this. Why did they do sacrifices in the old Testament in anticipation of the death of Christ, right? The author of Hebrews makes that clear. And why do we celebrate communion in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ, right? Well, Ezekiel tells us that during the millennium, God will assign animal sacrifices so that Jews then can be reminded of the death of Christ by killing those animals. So in the Old Testament, animal sacrifice never took away sins. It was an anticipation of the future death of Christ. And in the millennium, it happens in retrospect, in hindsight, in remembrance of Christ. Bingo. Well, we're out of time. It's been fun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we just thank you for these fun questions. I just thank you for all the people who asked them. And regardless of their reasons and motives, it was fun going through them. We are just thankful that your word has the answers. And we're also just asking you, Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, who has never placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's never acknowledged that they are a sinner, that they need salvation, and that Jesus is the only way, that right now in their heart they would place their faith in Christ alone to save them. They would trust that he died in the cross for sins, was buried and rose again in the third day, and that that finished work, if faith is placed in it, will save them. So, Father, may they turn from their sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ and become your children. For the rest of us, may we leave here just remembering what was read this morning, that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of your mouth. We thank you for what we have in Christ's name. Amen.